Hey, everybody, before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. Do you love Bullseye? Like, so much you want to tell everybody about it. Do you want to hear your voice on the radio? Call us and leave us a voicemail at 323-484-4712 and tell us why you love the show. That number, again, is 323-484-4712. We want to use clips of your testimonials about what you love about Bullseye in our show promos to convince people to give it a try. 323-484-4712. Thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, it's a cliche, something every writer starting up gets told dozens and dozens of times. Write what you know, right? Good writers weave made-up stuff with autobiography all the time. Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon pretty much did exactly that. They wrote a movie together about the early days of their relationship. They're married now. They called it The Big Sick. And one thing that they learned, writing about your actual life, your actual friends and family, it can it can be scary. It's scary on a couple levels. Mm-hmm. One, you don't want to mess it up because it's your story. You get one crack at it and you want to do a good job of it. And then the, it's also scary because you do feel so naked and vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, to a lot of people. And we're in this weird position now where we want more people to watch it. So we want to feel naked and vulnerable in front of the biggest audience possible. It's Bullseye. Coming up, we'll talk with Kumail and Emily about how they turned the real story of their relationship into a feature-length Academy Award-nominated movie. Sometimes Kumail says you just need to get that personal stuff out there, even if it's a little gross. I just felt like, for me, it was like, you know when there's a ketchup bottle and there's the filled gunk at the top, you gotta, like, slam it and get it out before you can do anything else? That's how I felt this story was. That is not a good description of this movie, though. We are not the gunk at the top of the ketchup. Then Allison Janet. She's also up for an Academy Award. She plays Tanya Harding's mother in the movie I, Tanya. She's also on the CBS sitcom Mom. On Mom, Janie is outrageous and fun and ridiculous, and she says, as an actress, that's kind of liberating. And the things she says, I still sometimes I go, really? I'm gonna say, is it okay that I say this? Seriously, you're going to let me say this? I'll say a line, I'll go, here it goes, here it goes, and I say it, and the audience roars, and I'm like, okay. Plus, you'll hear from Michelle Gondry about the song that changed his life. And from me, about the last movie Orson Welles ever directed. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guests are Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. They're the co-screenwriters of The Big Sick. You've probably heard about it this past week. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. You can watch it right now on Amazon. Two, The Big Sick tells the mostly true story of how the two of them got together, how Kumail balanced his Pakistani family's traditional attitude about marriage and love with his own, how Emily figured out he was the one, and how a catastrophic illness brought the two closer together. If it sounds like a romantic comedy, it is a romantic comedy, but it's also messy and sweet and totally honest. Kumail plays himself in the movie— Emily is played by Zoe Gazan. In this scene from the beginning, the two meet for the first time. Kumail just finished a set at a club. He goes up to Emily, and he's about to give her the business because she heckled him. Hi. Hi. Um, my name is Kumail. <laughs> yeah, we know. Yeah, we saw you before. Now that the niceties are out of the way, um, I have to tell you that when you yelled at me, it really threw me off, and uh, you really shouldn't heckle comedians. It's so rude. I didn't heckle you. I just woohooed you. It's supportive. Okay, that's a common misconception. Uh-huh. Like yelling anything at a comedian is considered heckling. Heckling doesn't have to be negative. So if I if I yelled out like, "You're amazing in bed," <laughs> that'd be a heckle. Yeah, it would be an accurate heckle. Wow. Oh. <laughs> 
Kumail, Emily, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's nice to see you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Nice to see you too, pals. Um, congratulations on this movie. It's a really spectacular thing. I think that one of the things that I was wondering as I was watching it was when someone says to you, you should, you're talented, and I'm guessing they probably approached you, Kumail, because you're a, you're a famous person of a sort. Someone came to you and said, you're talented. You should write a movie. And you said, okay, I'll write it about this incredibly personal, important part of my life with a main character named Kumail Nanjiani. Yeah. Why did you do that? Why didn't you just write, like, you're a passionate movie lover. Why didn't you write uh, uh, Gremlins 4? Oh, he tried. That was one of his pitches. Wait, are we skipping <laughs> over Gremlins 3? Wait, I couldn't, re- I couldn't remember how many Gremlins there I were. I would love to write Gremlins 3. I like, the idea, I like the idea that we're writing Gremlins 4, which is a sort of speculative fiction film based on what if there already was of Gremlins 3. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple layers of abstraction. You have to, when the Gremlins 4 opens, the world is in ruins. So yeah. you're like, what the f- Happened in Gremlins yeah, 3. Yeah, and actually Gremlins 4, there are no gremlins in it. <laughs> we're it's, the gremlins. Yeah, we're, it turns out we're the gremlins, and it's just about a, a couple uh, getting divorced and uh, from the perspective of their eight-year-old son. That Joe Dante is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it really turns things on their head. Um, I think it was because I knew before I think Emily wanted to, I knew that I wanted to turn this thing that had happened to us into something, into some kind of story, I sort of started, like, kicking around in my head the idea, like, I think this is a pretty big, crazy thing that happened. It was very specific. Nobody else has this story. And I just felt like, for me, it was like, you know when there's a ketchup bottle and there's the gunk at the top, you got to, like, slam it and get it out before you can do anything else? That's how I felt this story was. That is not a good description of this movie, though. We are not the gunk at the top of the ketchup. <laughs> we are not. Bottle. The movie is the gunk at the no, top. No, the of movie that. isn't either. <laughs> I mean, both of you had revealed your lives in your own ways. I mean, Kumail, you're a stand up comic that is, you know, it's essentially an act of self revelation in one form or another. And you had talked about your life to some extent. Um, Emily, you were a writer and had written about your life publicly on mm-hmm. the internet. But this is a different kind of thing. Like, you are really taking a risk, even when you have full creative control, in representing your life in this way. It must have been scary. I think it was a little scary at first. It was definitely more scary for me. And then, as we more people kind of came on to our team, I then started to see the the kind of beauty in separating yourself from the story that you're telling and separating your own story from this story. Because this story is our story, but it's also Michael Showalter's story. It's also Judd Apatow's story, Barry Mendel's story, Zoe Kazan's. It's all everyone who was involved in making the movie. It kind of became their story. And that that may sound corny, but that is actually what it is. So that helped me emotionally to kind of like, oh, this isn't just us. This has now become all of our story. We kind of become the face of it. Um, right. Because it, it did originally happen to us, but it's everyone's story. It's scary on a couple levels. Mm-hmm. One, you don't want to mess it up because it's your story. You get one crack at it and you want to do a good job of it. And then the it's also scary because you do feel so naked and vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, to a lot of people. And we're in this weird position now where we want more people to watch it. So we want to feel naked and vulnerable in front of the biggest audience possible. Emily, you were a therapist Mm -hmm. before you were a screenwriter and producer. That's correct. Um, Why did you quit? Uh, It's a very, very taxing career. Uh, And I specifically were pick. I was picking jobs and populations to work with that were very intense because that's what I like to do as a therapist. And I just found that it was very taxing. And after the events of this movie, uh, where I became very sick, I just kind of found that I. I didn't have enough resources left to focus solely as much on my clients as I should have. Um, and so I started feeling like I needed to find something else to do because I just I was burning out. Honestly, I was working with incredibly mentally, very severely mentally ill people at the time that I got sick, uh, people with schizophrenia and all kind of a host of other things. And I remember after coming back um, from being sick, I had all these scars on myself and I kind of was very pale and I was much skinnier and I just was kind of looked sickly. And one of my I had a couple of clients who didn't thought that I'd been replaced. Um, and then I had another client who was a little more kind of... Um, what do you co- mean replaced? They thought I'd been... Because re- well, they're very mentally ill, so they thought I'd been replaced with someone else and they didn't trust me anymore. 
I get that. And then one who was pretty high functioning and I was like, yeah, I was really sick. And I, you know, he was like, oh, did a vampire bite you? You look really weird. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, because the normal response when you're sick is for people is to be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I hope everything's OK. But these are people who are struggling mightily with themselves. And so they don't have they don't have the resources to kind of take it easy on me. And I realized like, oh, I kind of need someone to take it easy on me right now. And I don't think I'm as effective as I used to be. So I slowly started kind of detaching myself from um, being a therapist. It's still in my heart. It's still kind of in my blood, but it was, it became hard for me to see clients after a little bit. When did you two start working together? Was the podcast before the show? Um, I think it was. Yeah. So the two things we've done before this together were the podcast, Indoor Kids, the video game podcast that we were talking about that you've been on. And the Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, which was the stand-up show that I produced that uh, Jonah Ray and Kumail hosted. Why did you want to get involved in all that, Emily? (laughs) I started – I've always been a comedy <laughs> fan. I mean, how we that's how we met was that I was going to comedy shows. I've loved stand-up forever. And when we moved to New York together, our only social life because we were broke and didn't know anybody and kind of weren't didn't have anything else to do, um, I would work all day. I would come home and Kumail would then need to go to work. His work was open mics. So I just started going with him to open mics. And I went to so many open mics. And I, I am so sorry. I know, right? But and it was kind of tragic and awful because you'd go into these like it'd be a sunny, gorgeous New York day, and then you're like, let's head into this basement for the next five hours, um, <laughs> and that's what we would do. That's such an exaggeration. It was like six hours usually. Um, but <laughs> in that basement, I would I started watching comedians' jokes kind of evolve, and I kind of just fell in love with it. And I kind of um, I fell in love with the process of creating comedy and creating a good space for comedy. Uh, and I kind of started nerding out about it. So I, I um, as soon as I got a chance to, I started producing a show in New York and then started working after I quit um, doing therapy. I started working in a comedy club as like a very low level grunt worker. <laughs> well, you had a good sense. Like when you would go to comedy shows, Emily would be like, mm, this shouldn't be like this. This should be like this. The sound should be like this. It was you always had every comedy show we went to. You knew why it wasn't a good comedy show. It's a bit like group therapy, comedy, any of that stuff. Anything where you have people together in a public space that need to, like, come together as one. They're just – it needs to feel safe, but that within that safety, anything could happen. That's true for both therapy and and comedy. And so I – I'd done a lot of group therapy and I kind of not that it's like not that comedy is like oh group therapy but it is a similar thing that everyone's kind of coming together as one and needs to experience something as one. Kumail wrote the first couple of drafts of this movie. Yes, he wrote the first draft. Yeah. Yeah. When you read it what did you think was missing from it? Oh my god. Oh, How come nobody Why are you going to make us do this? <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, I've never asked you this. No, you haven't. I think the first draft that I read... Uh-huh. Oh, God. Um, no, it's fine. I Go can ahead. be honest, right? Yes, okay. please. It was slightly... It was very long and slightly servicey. I'll say. And often... What, wait, what does that mean? It was a little like... It didn't dive into any kind of intense conversations. Uh, it just was like... It kind of stopped and didn't and didn't do that. And I think uh, you have such a great sense of putting jokes into things... It was such a funny script, but often the jokes would be it would be like three pages of like jokes and then like a half a page of like and then they have a talk and everything's okay. So I think you were still very scared making was, that first it draft. Was the first draft. I know. <laughs> That's why I feel terrible. I mean, if anybody critiques the first draft in anything, it's it's rough. It's always rough. Um, you were still working through your fear about writing it. I think in that yeah. first draft, and so you were going to what was comfortable for you and what's comfortable for character Kumail. All this stuff informed the movie of like when stuff's uncomfortable, let's get some jokes in. Um, so it was a very very funny draft, but not a very kind of deep dive. That's not an uncommon thing yeah. for a comedian or a comedy person to use jokes to avoid engaging with deep emotion. I had actually never heard of it before. <laughs> right. And that's what happens in the movie a lot. Yeah. You know, it's sort of that's supposed to be the character's journey is that whenever anything deep happens, he tries to make a joke and it's him learning to engage with his emotions. What parts of this were you most scared to engage with, Camille? Um, For me, the stuff with my parents was difficult and then the stuff with Emily's illness was difficult. Those were the ones that specifically later in the movie when Emily's illness um it feels bleak when she doesn't get better yeah. so and in, in the movie uh the character of Emily uh, as in real life falls into a medically induced coma because of an unusual mystery illness and there are a few moments when we're certain that we're on the way 
uh, out of the coma and not it so persists. Much. Yeah. Yeah. And Nevertheless. We, w- yeah. <laughs> well, what we wanted to show with that was I remember the experience of uh, going through it while she was under was it really was a roller coaster. They would be like, oh, she's great. She's going to be up. And then like a couple of hours go by. They're like, uh, oh, no, it's bad. It didn't happen. So it's just like it was just always up and down and up and down and there would be hope and then be taken away. It was like it truly was a roller coaster. It was like peaks and valleys every single day. So that's a little bit what we wanted to show in the movie is the sense of like it's almost resolved. No, it's the worst it's ever been. Actually, it's the best it's ever been. No, no, no. It's even worse than even worse than the last time when we said it was worse. It was it's the worst now. So it's uh her her condition was really um it was weird to hear of the condition fluctuating, but when you look at her, there seems to be no change, you know. And that was difficult for you to deal with as a writer because of the memories that you had of the real situation? Yes. So it was tough. So what happened was, so we, we went through this whole thing, and then we didn't, we talked about it some, but we didn't really talk about it that much. Um, Emily, in, in real life, after it happened. In real life. In yes. real life, it was like, wow, that was crazy, right? But But I hadn't really gone through and sifted through that experience. Um, sort of piece by piece. I just had sort of put it in my head as like, that was crazy, and that was it. And whenever I would think about it, it was like kind of uh, paralyzing. It was scary. So the tough thing about writing this movie, one of the tough things was having to like sort of literally try and remember every single thing, every single day, and what it felt like. And actually, if you just... What it felt like wasn't hard to conjure up. If you just thought of it, if I just thought of it, I would feel feel like I was back there. There's a beautiful moment in the movie where you, in the movie The Big Sick, your movie, uh, where you, Kumail, as the character based on you, go to the gift store and buy an enormous giraffe. Yeah. Yeah. I love that scene because it really was like the, the feeling was you can't fix her. So you try and do other stuff. Like I remember her parents got like new curtains for her house and put up new curtains. Um, And that's the kind of stuff that you that like her mom did laundry for her. It's like because you can't really fix the problem. So you just sort of do the best you can. And it's it's beautiful, but it's also very desperate. Like the giraffe thing I really like because it really to me felt. That's kind of how it felt like going through it where you're like, I can't. The problem is you can't fix you can't fix the main thing. There's nothing you can do. You're not a doctor. You can't do it. So what do you do? You just go and buy a giant stuffed giraffe. That's all you can do. I'll also say I did not actually receive a giant stuffed giraffe at any point in time. <laughs> but you got a lot of flowers and I stuff. Did. You're, still, you're still holding on to that still resentment. Still a little upset about the giraffe thing. <laughs> I want to play a scene from The Big Sick, and my guests are Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon, who co-wrote it, um, based on their own life experience uh, as, a, as a now married couple, then courting as Emily went through a horrible health crisis. And uh, Emily, the character based on you is is in a coma in this scene. Um, it is like days after the two of you in the film have broken up. Kumail, you find out about the coma and you're at the hospital trying and not sure what to do to lend a hand. And you call Emily's parents. They come and you've never met them before, and uh, they know all of your secrets Yeah, uh, because Emily has told them everything, mm-hmm. which is a great contrast to your life, Kumail, where you have not told your parents that you're dating a white girl at all. Right. And you and the parents, Kumail, have sit down together in the cafeteria, and, and we'll hear Ray Romano and Holly Hunter as, as Emily's folks. How's your sandwich? Sandwich I ever had. Mine's good. Tuna's always a gamble, but you know, we're not by the water, but we are by the water. But it's a lake. There's no tuna in the lake. Whatever. I, I threw the dice. 
I got the sevens, I guess. Whatever, whatever the good dice number is. So, uh, 9-11. I've always wanted to have a conversation with, about it with people. You've never talked to people about 9-11? No, what's your, what's your stance? What's my stance on 9-11? Oh, um, anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. Huh? That was a joke, obviously. 9-11 was a terrible tragedy. And it's not funny to joke about it. Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, please report to the ICU. <laughs> I like that joke. Yes, you do. <laughs> That is a real comedian's joke. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> you could hardly find a more vivid example of things that comedians say to each other and should not say to their should girlfriend's parents. Should not say I know. to anyone. And that's exactly what it is. It's like an awkward situation. Kamal in the movie doesn't know what to do. So he just goes for the most awful joke possible. Yeah. Oh, my God. I sometimes think that uh, you wanted to write this entire movie so you'd have an excuse to put that joke in somewhere because you can't do it on stage, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I can't do that joke on stage. Um, But, um, yeah, I I, I like that scene, and I think Holly and Ray are so amazing in this movie. It's such a great... We really wanted to... Holly and Ray, the characters that they play are very... Not very much like my parents whatsoever. We really, Judd was kind of great about being like, okay, you have this character, Kumail. We kind of know who he is. Who are the worst type of people for him to be paired with? Um, and so, you know, both of both the parents are way too, they're kind of oversharing in different ways. Uh, Holly kind of really takes him to task and doesn't let him get away with anything, whereas Ray is just kind of always kind of talking and kind of an emotional guy. And also always doing bad dad jokes. And so Judd really helped us, as well as his actors, kind of take those characters and create these people that are just the absolute worst type of people for Kumail to be stuck with for days at a time. Yeah. More of my interview with Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani coming up. Don't go anywhere. Still to come. Only a couple of months before it came out, Kumail and Emily screened The Big Sick for their parents. How did it go? It was a little weird, since, you know, their parents are in the movie as fictional characters. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from WordPress.com. Creating your website on WordPress helps your customers find you, remember you, and connect with you. WordPress has hundreds of beautiful designs, the ability to add a custom domain name, and features to make your business more visible online. Get 15% off your new website today at wordpress.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. The two of them co-wrote the new movie, The Big Sick. Kumail also stars in it. It's in theaters now. Emily, Kumail's character is the protagonist of the movie, which is not all that – it's not always the case in romantic comedies. Um, sometimes a woman is a protagonist in the movie, although sometimes she's also kind of the subject mm-hmm. uh, uh, rather than a – you know, rather than she's having not initiative. Active. Yeah. How do you incorporate a woman's humanity and perspective – in a movie where the lead female character uh, physically cannot talk for half of the runtime of the film. How do you not make it just about dudes and how they see the world? We definitely were very, very adamant, and everyone was, not just me, was very adamant from the beginning that it can't be a movie where um, Emily goes into a coma so that Kumail gets to grow up and like learn about life and love. We didn't want it to be that kind of a movie. And I think... Um, and I, I don't know why I haven't been talking about this in press up until recently, but I used to actually do a workshop in New York about how rom-coms are ruining our romantic love lives, specifically women, uh, although I'm, I'm sure it damages men in all kinds of ways too. But I kind of grew up watching rom-coms, and it, I started expecting that my 
I was supposed to be feeling what I was seeing on screen. And what I was seeing on screen was that if a guy was interested in me, I was supposed to be interested in him because he was interested in me. And not that he was interesting or cool or fun to be around, but because he showed me interest. And even bonus, if he did some weird, like, big gesture of love, now I'm really supposed to be in love with them. And I'm maybe I'm an idiot for taking those lessons from movies, but those are the lessons I took. And I was in a lot of, like, kind of pretty crummy relationships uh, as a result of men kind of acting out these gestures they've seen in movies and me going, sure, absolutely, and never stopping to actually get into a conversation with the person that I was dating and find out whether or not I was compatible with them. So we really wanted to make sure that the Emily in this movie isn't just interested in Kumail because Kumail's interested in her. And that, um, you know, he did. He kind of falls in love with her essentially while she's asleep and realizes his feelings for her. We'll say that's a better way to put it while she's asleep, but that didn't have anything to do with her. He was kind of falling in love with someone who literally wasn't there. Um, and through her, her parents and through her his memories of her, that's all great, but she still needs to catch up to that and she needs to kind of, um, she needs to negotiate that too. So we were very adamant that even more so because she's gone for so much of the movie that she, when she is present, she needs to have a voice and her voice can't be receiving love. It needs to be negotiating that love and those relationships too. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. Emily, your parents have seen the movie? They have. Kumail, have your parents seen the movie? Yes. When did you show it to them? They they saw it like three or four days ago, very recently. So this is, we're recording this as the release of the film is like imminent. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, the wide release. The The movie is screened all over. Yes. Oh, okay. The big boy release. For some time. Yeah. Okay. So now it's going to be the wide, wide release. Yeah. I just got very nervous. It's totally fine. I my parents saw it nervous. a while ago, and his parents saw it more recently. Yeah, I just had my parents see it <laughs> basically like 10 days before the... The small release. I had my. I, I. I had sent my brother over to be like, "Hey, watch this with them and make sure that they don't freak out." You sent your brother like as a tour guide, kind of, as, as sort of a uh, like a therapy dog oh. or something. Oh yeah, that's nice. It'd be like, like yeah, just just go and make them make them feel okay about this because it is a lot for them to deal with. Because Emily, your character, your parents in the film are a played by. <laughs> Two beloved actors, yes, Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. I mean, I I would watch any movie in which Holly Hunter played me, even if it was me as a serial killer. Absolutely. Uh, and B, you have you can offer your parents more remove than Camille can. You can say, "Look, this isn't your. This isn't you. This is this is uh, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano doing their thing, uh, yeah. and whatever serves the plot." Kumail, your parents in the film, you have less distance to offer them as an explanation. That's right. It's partially right. I mean, the your father in the movie is a legendary Bollywood actor, and so he kind of brings his own – he brings just as much Ray Romano flavor to that part as Ray brought to my father's part, I would say, Emily's father's part. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. I, I But I did, you know, I did call my parents when we first got the film – when it looked like we were going to have the film made, I did call my parents and was like, hey, we're making a movie. It's based on this stuff. Here's where it's exactly like what happened. Here's where it's like you. Here's how these characters are different from you. They have different names in the movie, too, um, than in real life. So so I sort of prepped them for it, and I told them every single thing. But it's still, I think, jarring to see. You know, for us, it's still weird to see our lives on screen and for them to see it and have nothing to do with the making of it. I understand that that's a very strange thing. I understand that very few people have that experience and are ready for that experience. Like suddenly they saw two hours of a version of their life on screen and they had almost no hand in the creation of it. We're very lucky to have very smart and very wonderful and very warm parents, all four of them. Kumail and Emily, thanks so much for coming on Bullseye. Always great to see you guys. Thank you, you too. Thank you for having us. Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani, ladies and gentlemen. Two of the best people we've ever had on the show. Two of my all-time faves. Their movie, The Big Sick, is up for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. A, a million billion congratulations to Emily and Kumail. Such, so talented and, and such good people. If you haven't seen The Big Sick, what's up? What's your problem? You okay? You can get it on Amazon right now, pretty much anywhere else. Don't sleep on it. The Big Sick. It's a great movie. It's Bullseye. 
I'm Jesse Thorne. The French director Michel Gondry creates a certain kind of feeling in his movies. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Science of Sleep, the many, many, many music videos he's directed. They all have it. You could say it's like nostalgia, but Gondry has a better word for it. Saudade. It's Portuguese. He's going to tell you about it. Anyway, as it turns out, there's a song that introduced him to this feeling. When I was probably about... Actually, he saw it. He was watching TV in France on a Saturday night. It was one of those uh, easy listening shows where you have this, uh, what you call variété in French. And that's how we spend a lot of our uh, Saturday evenings uh, in the 70s. The singer Nino Ferrer was on screen, performing the song Les Sourds. And Michel was struck by the image of a topless woman. And while that sight is what grabbed his attention, it's the song that stayed with him all these years, mostly. So it's sweet memories. would have been Nino Ferrer. And he was doing this song that was just really beautiful. That's as well really sad. C'est un endroit qui ressemble à la Louisiane, à l'Italie. The song uh, speaks about a non-specific country, uh, which is in the south, where life is beautiful, but it's going to end up in war, and it's nothing anyone can do about it. On dirait le sud. But what was funny about it is like he would perform always with this girl around him who were like from the Caribs and she was topless. So as a kid, you could see a breast on TV and I think it made an impression on me. It was completely amazing to see at, uh, you know, 8 p.m. this naked woman dancing on the TV when you're a kid. So he say uh, things could last more than a million years and then forever in summer and then you have the sad piano melody comes back. He had something eternal about it, something that I think uh, in Brazilian they call that saudade. It's this feeling that you have where you are happy and sad at the same time. get melancholic uh, at a very young age. Even if when you're in uh, uh, 10 or 12 year old you remember when you were 4 and you have nostalgia about it. So it doesn't bother to write lyrics here. He said enough already. It's already uh, engraved in your memory. But then the second chapter, uh, it's becoming very dark. I guess I'm a nostalgic person. And uh, I think I'm guess I like minor chords because uh, they make you melancholic. Uh, 
So it's a one of those days, it's gonna be war, there's nothing you can do about it, and uh, it's how it is. Too bad for the South. It was still, it was good. We could have lived more than a million years. And always in summer. So it reflects the melancholy I had in me. Maybe I remember this song sometime when I make a movie. But you have to put that in the context of this beautiful lady dancing around with a naked breast. <laughs> Michel Gondry talked to us in 2014 about the song that changed his life, Les Sud by Nino Ferrer. Michel's currently working on a big new project, a TV series called Kidding, that's set to star Catherine Keener, Jim Carrey, Frank Langella, and more. It'll be on Showtime later this year. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Heads up that there is a little bit of bleeped swearing and talk about sex in this next interview. Allison Janney says that when she was in her 20s, she was always getting cast as a 40-year-old. And it makes sense because she's just, she's a kind of elegant woman. And in fact, she was about 40 when she got the role that made her career as the press secretary C.J. Craig on the West Wing. Janney won four Emmys for the part. Let her stretch her gifts. She was by turns sharp and warm, maternal and sexy. When we talked in 2014, she was starring on two TV shows, Showtime's Masters of Sex and CBS's Mom. Mom is wrapping up its fifth season now. She's just been nominated for her first Academy Award ever for her role in I, Tanya, the Tanya Harding biopic. She plays Lavana Faye Golden, mother to Tanya Harding. In this scene, Tanya, played by Margot Robbie, confronts Lavana in the diner where she works. Did you... I mean, when I was a kid, did you ever love me or anything? You think Sonia Henny's mother loved her? Poor you. I didn't stay home making apple brown Bettys. No, I made you a champion. Knowing you'd hate me for it. That's the sacrifice a mother makes. I wish I'd had a mother like me instead of nice. Nice gets your I didn't like my mother either. So what? I gave you a gift. He cursed me. You're a monster. Spilled milk, baby. Allison, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. I'm happy to be here. Um, I w- want to ask you a little bit about the beginning of your career. There's not a lot of uh, actors and actresses out there who can say that they were discovered in college by Paul Newman. That's a yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. rock solid origin story. Yeah, that's a pretty cool, a very cool beginnings of a career story. How did it happen? Uh, well, I was I went to Kenyon College, which is where Paul Newman graduated, and they built um, a beautiful new theater uh, there called the Bolton Theater. And to christen it, they invited Paul to come and direct the first play that would be produced in the theater. And that happened to be my freshman year. And, of course, everybody was auditioning for it. It didn't matter if you were interested in the theater or at all. Everyone wanted to be in something that Paul Newman directed. So there was a lot of competition for that. But I I, uh, and they had people audition by um, just coming up on stage and talking to Paul for like a minute or you had like, you know, you had a minute and that was it and you could get you know. up. And I decided I would appeal to his um, his love of driving cars. So I bragged about how in my Scirocco, I could drive from Dayton, Ohio to Gambier, Ohio in an hour and 32 minutes if I took Route 22. Like I just – I made up some – you know, of course, I, I really didn't drive that fast, but I, I kind of lied um, a little bit and and made the story sound very exciting. And I was like, and that's how I got to Kenyon or, you know. And I'm sure that had no nothing to do with why I got it. I probably just looked the part. I was, a, you know, it was supposed to be a bunch of ragtag chorus girls. Um, just you know, and there I was, you know, six feet tall, and I probably got cast in that because of my height and my ridiculous um, 
um, physicality next to the other chorus girls. And um, I've always thought I looked otherworldly or 1940. You know, I could easily be from that era. I, I heard he gave you like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, he said, um, he said if you ever need a favor in this business, he said it has to, has to be very specific, but I will, I will do it for you. And I was just so honored and thrilled that he said that to me. It was like a you know a valium in my back pocket, but I never, I never asked him for it because I could never think of the right one. But just knowing I had it made me feel, you know, more confident. And I was just really honored that he said that to me. Um, but I didn't take advantage of it. We'll have even more with the actress Allison Janney after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, gang, it's Jesse. Do you have a smart speaker, an Alexa, a Google Home, or whatever? Good news. That means you have access to the entire world of NPR with your smart speaker. Ask it to play NPR or check the news while you get ready for work or fix dinner. There's a new radio in your house, and it's easier than ever to listen to Bullseye, to Morning Edition, to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. So go ahead. Give it a shot. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. In conclusion, Alexa, play Huey Lewis in the News Sports. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Allison Janney. She's the star of The West Wing, of Mom on CBS, and of more. She's also nominated for an Oscar this year for her role in the film I, Tanya." She and I talked in 2014. When you... Uh got the script for Masters of Sex. Was it already called Masters of Sex? Yes. The show name had already been uh, determined. I did not know. I had already. I knew at that point they wanted me to come on board. They had a character in mind. They hadn't written it yet, but she was going to be um, the wife of the provost, played by Bo Bridges. Something I was actually a little afraid to take on, and also when they suggested or you know said they would be nudity most more than likely, and I'd have to do a sex scene, and I was like, well, let's talk about that because uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that people really are going to want to see that, uh, you know. And they said, listen, it's going to be you are going to have to be completely comfortable with it, and we will t- not do anything that you're not comfortable with, and. And I think had I not started on a crazy Pilates workout, not eating bread pasta routine, uh, not even knowing that this was going to come my way, I might not have – I don't know what I would have said. But I, fortunately, I was in pretty good shape for, for, for me, um, the best I'd been in a long time. So I thought, well, all right, I'm not going to be afraid. Let's do it. Let's do it. And, and, then, and then I got the first script and it was just uh, – and every script – Thereafter, it was just – I really looked forward to playing this character because of all the different layers that were going on with, with her. And uh, it was one of the most rewarding I've played in a long time. It's so poignant to see, um, to see this woman in middle age try and come to terms with stuff that people usually are called upon to come to terms with when they're – 16 she has to like get to know her sexuality and she has to like realize yeah. what a realize what a relationship with someone is M- margaret or Scully, could be, yeah. all through this yeah the the unraveling of her of someone's life and what they thought it was and and everything the rug is just pulled out from under her and as she slowly goes down this this journey, and and here is a it's this the silent um, taking in of information at the mahjong games with the girlfriends, and hearing about the sex study, and hearing about what sex feels like. And gosh, I don't feel that way. And and, and trying to have my husband want me, and he doesn't. And then getting you know, and then having falling into an affair, like. Um, I love my mother so much, but I just thought about her uh, being, you know, about that age, you know, and she was she was like 20, in the 50s, being, she, she had just married my father in 1956 um, uh, or 57. 
and then started having I, there were three kids, an older brother, me, and my younger brother. I just thought of her finding this stuff out, and my and my mother, so such a gracious woman and so polite and so concerned with manners and. I just imagined her going into master's office and going through that sex study, you know, intake questionnaire thing, and it just became very easy for me to 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 play her. She was definitely more like me than the character on um, on Mom. When you agreed to do Mom, was it a part that was um, uh, created for you, or was it something you had to audition for? I had to. I didn't have to audition. Well, they don't call it that when you know. But you I definitely test? did. You have to go to no. go to lunch with some people. I went in just to have a, a chemistry meet and greet type thing with with Anna and you know in in Chuck's office. Anna Ferris, the other star of the show. Yes, um, she and Chuck were the ones who were on board with this with mom and um they then called me to come in and meet with them and and uh i was excited cuz chuck and i had tried to work together right after the west wing we had a development deal together and we were trying to to think of a show to develop for me and it didn't end up going and i was a little disappointed cuz I, I really liked working with chuck and um so i was excited to go in on this one and i went in and and i was really a big fan of anna's work and i'd just seen her in the house bunny and thought she was hysterical and really thought i think i think we're going to get along fine i just had a feeling and and we did let's hear a clip from mom and um so allison your character bonnie in this scene is is explaining to uh, her daughter christy who's played by anna ferris why um uh, why she lied to her about her father who was who was uh, absent for most of her childhood. And um, she's in this scene, she's, she's only basically just told her the, the truth. I'm about to go over there and hear his side of the story. Are you sure you don't want to tell me yours first? Uh, fine. Uh, <clears throat> I was 16. I was living with my fifth set of foster parents, and I... Since I was losing their support, may have been related to a Trinitron TV that went missing. <laughs> anyway, I uh, met your father shortly thereafter. Timing was good. I was between homes. He had a Winnebago. So it wasn't a one-night stand? No, no. We were in love. Lived together two years before I got pregnant. He was so excited he was going to be a dad. He brought me strawberry milkshakes every day. He made you a crib out of leather. <laughs> and then you surprised us a couple weeks early at a, at a Blue Oyster Cult concert. My water broke right in the middle of Don't Fear the Reaper. I never liked that song. Well, understandable. You were stuck in my pelvis the first time you heard it. <laughs> I was watching an episode of Mom earlier today, and the storylines that were happening, I'll see if I can uh, summarize them. Your your granddaughter's character is pregnant and uh, looks like she's having the baby, but she's giving it up for adoption. Your character's ex-husband has just reappeared for the first time in forever uh, in his daughter and granddaughter's life. Um, It's prom. Uh, and the, uh, your grand, your character's granddaughter is trying to decide whether or not she's okay with going to prom pregnant. Mm-hmm. That sounds um, familiar. And you know, and the and the baseline that's running through all of this is your character and your daughter's character dealing with recovery. Yeah. And meanwhile, every three seconds is a gut punch joke. You know, like a boom joke. And that's a, just a lot. <laughs> it's really, it's a really intense viewing experience. <laughs> it is, you know, you're right. There is, there is a lot going on, a lot of different uh, levels and and uh, and emotions and subject matters that aren't necessarily half hour comedy uh, fair. But I, I don't know. I guess people seem to like it because we we got asked back for season two, which is I mean, fantastic. It, what I think is interesting mm-hmm. is that I, I think on a lot of sitcoms that deal with quote-unquote serious topics, mm-hmm. there is a sort of modal slash tonal switch back and forth. So you get a little bit of, okay, we're going to deal with the topic now through this thoughtful, introspective scene. Yeah. Um, and on Mom, at least what I've seen, 
there are hard what you what you call hard jokes yeah. about every difficult subject. Yeah. That just go straight for it. <laughs> I I I think that's the only way to do it. It just hit it head on and, and not get sentimental or I think the audience is responding to that. They like they like that. You know, dealing with cancer and just you know, Bonnie talking to Marjorie played by um uh, Mimi Kennedy just you know, straight on, like, well, what are we going to do about the hair? We've got to get you a wig. We've got to do that. You know, just people like, well, I can't believe she's going right there. But um, we're not afraid to go right there. And I think people, um, people like that. I know Chuck Glory uh, has, you know, has a past that informs this desire to want to do work about, uh, about addiction and recovery. Was that something that you talked to him about when you first went in there to meet with him and, and Anna Ferris, like why he wanted to do this? I did not ask him why he wanted to. It's a world that I um, was not afraid to um, play in. I, I've had a lot of friends and people close to me who have who I've tried to help get sober, and I've been to many Al-Anon meetings, many open AA meetings. I've unfortunately I had to deal with it a, a, a lot so I, I i feel like everyone these days is is dealing with recovery everybody you know and anything that we can do to destigmatize recovery and addiction is is a good thing i know that i know that you lost your brother sort of not long after uh not long after west wing a number of years ago now but yeah. not that long ago yeah 3 years ago I wonder, and I know that that was also an issue for him. Uh, oh, yeah, it was a big issue. That was, I mean, I think it was because of him uh, losing him to addiction and um, alcoholism that I I wanted to play Bonnie. I just, I, I wanted to play a character who was dealing with that. And not that that would be, um, well, you know, not that it would be honoring him, but if somehow I could help someone out there by playing a character who was going through it and we put it out there and someone got felt better seeing what they were going through on TV and, and didn't feel so lonely or felt like, gosh, it feels good to have my life being put up on television, having people, in, you know, not that they're enjoying it, but to see it represented in a, in a, in a good way. I wanted to, to do that. It also gave me the confidence to be in that world because I, I was in it a lot, a lot. It must also be kind of kind of liberating for you as a performer to get to be someone who's in recovery and like trying to be in that sober space, but also gets to be kind of outrageous and fun mm-hmm. and ridiculous and just like a happy next step version of that world. Yes. Uh, yeah. Gratefully, Bonnie is, um, yeah, she's a bull in a not that she's cup. Not that she's got everything under control. No, but. she does not. Uh, she is the most unlike me of, of almost any character I've ever played. And the things she says, I still sometimes like, oh, really? I'm going to say, is it okay that I say this? Seriously, you're going to let me say this? <laughs> Chuck, or like, and the things that do make it through. There are same some things that don't ever make it to the to the television, um, but program. But but the things that that do, I'm just like, all right, and I, that's what I do in front of the live audience. I'll say a line, I'll go, here it goes, here it goes, and I say it, and the audience roars, and I'm like, okay, uh, you know, they like it, they they uh, they buy it, they like uh, as her being as outrageous as possible. Um, and it's a lot of fun getting to. To have an excuse to be obnoxious. <laughs> well, Alice and Janie, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. I really have enjoyed talking with you, Jesse. Thank you for having me on. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's an amazing shot in Touch of Evil. The movie's a noir, the last thing Hollywood let Orson Welles direct. He plays a cop in a border town, a crooked one. This Mexican detective's onto him, coming after him. We see the detective in this little mirror on the wall of a brothel where Wells is holed up. Anyway, this shot. You see Wells from just below against the crumbling adobe wall. He was already getting big then. This is the late 50s, but he was also padded out. He looks huge. He's in the bottom right-hand corner of the frame, breathing these big, heavy breaths. 
He's drunk, just fallen off the wagon. His tie's misplaced. His beard has grown in. And there in the center of the shot is this bullfighting trophy, a huge bull's head framed by the swords that killed it. Touch of Evil is a story about a great bull, honorable in his own way, but savage and terrifying too. A bull getting stuck again and again and fighting through until he can't anymore. Hank, I've been looking for you in every bar in town. Yeah, I've been in half of them, only here on the wrong side of the border. I never drink on my own beat. Bartender, give him some black coffee quick. I don't need He's black coffee. Meeting? Vargas at his hotel. The Mexican detective, who, by the way, is played by Charlton Heston, with a little bit of makeup and almost no accent, is the good guy. We can see that. But with Wells, it's a little harder to tell. Come in, Hank. Well, I don't know whether I'm welcome or not. I want you to hear this. Uh, I've heard it already. Our friend Vargas has some very special ideas about police procedure. He seems to think it don't matter whether a killer's hanged or not, so long as we obey the fine well, print. Captain, rule I don't think a policeman should work like a dog catcher. No. Putting criminals behind bars? No. In any free country, a policeman uh, is supposed to enforce the law, and the law protects the guilty as well as the innocent. job is tough enough. It's supposed to be. It has to be tough. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. That's the whole point, Captain. Who is the boss, the cop or the law? Citizen Kane was Wells' first movie. It changed film forever, but it also launched 45 years of pain for Wells. There were a few successes, but mostly there were decades and decades of failed projects, meddling financiers, and would've, could've, and should've beens. Wells was a great artist, but, you know... The whole thing was his own damn fault, too. Because he was a bull. Even in 1958, when Touch of Evil came out, he was a bull, careening through the world of film, destroying movies, trampling relationships out of anger and hurt, bolting out of the gate and getting stuck through over and over again till he just collapsed under his own weight. Toward the end of Touch of Evil, Wells is tired. He's lost his cane. He needs it to walk because he once took a bullet for a friend. And he's back in that brothel, trying to get the madam, Marlena Dietrich, to read his fortune. He wants to know if maybe, just maybe, he can pull this one out. What's my fortune? You've been reading the cards, haven't you? I've been doing the accounts. Come on, read my future for me. You haven't got any. Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Why don't you go home? Wells' old gamey leg gives him an intuition. That's what they say in the movie anyway. And he follows the pain. It hurts when he's on to something like a trick knee when a storm's coming. And he follows the pain, for good or ill, or for good by way of ill. Maybe the real Wells let his pain lead him too far. I don't know. I'm not a great artist, and Wells was. Maybe Dietrich has it pegged. He was some kind of a man. What does it matter what you say about people? Goodbye, Tanner. Adios. That's my answer. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. This week we saw something we're still not quite sure what to make of. Four guys with buckets on their heads. 
white buckets, like, uh, you know, the kind you'd buy at the, at the hardware store or whatever. What were they doing? I'm not sure. Maybe a student film project. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, who just sent us a bunch of new music inside a frankly terrifying greeting card that had a very creepy Sasquatch who danced and sang. Uh, That song goes... Um, It was really upsetting, frankly. But thanks for the new music, Dan. Our theme was recorded by the Go team, provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, log on to Facebook and check out the Bullseye page. I just want to tip my cap to my producer, Kevin, who wrote the phrase log on in quotation marks like it was 1994. We'll tip you off to upcoming interviews, trailers to movies we're excited about, like The Death of Stalin, which I am very excited about, and other cool stuff. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.